I invite you and encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. And you'll need a Bible. The guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll give one of those Bibles to you. When I say give, I mean it's our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. And so bring that back with you next week and every week so that we can look at God's Word together. Today, Jonah chapter 1. Today we begin a study in this book of Jonah. Most often, when we hear Jonah's name, it's immediately followed by, and the whale. If you grew up in Sunday school, then as a child, you'll remember being fascinated by that story. But the four chapters of this book are about more than that. And in fact, the great fish story in chapter 2 is incidental to a larger story, a larger story about us and about God. And I say it's about us because Jonah is biographical. This book is biographical and in all probability autobiographical, though it's written in the third person. As we read about the experience of Jonah, the things he did and the things he failed to do, and the inner workings of his heart, his fears and his motivations, we're going to see our own hearts mirrored there. And it's also a book about God and how Jonah came to discover the true character of the God that he had known since the early years of his life. But he moved from knowing about God to having the reality of who God is come alive in his experience. Or in the words of the title of this series, Jonah went from saying grace to saving grace. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we begin our look at this fascinating book. Our Father, we thank you now for gathering us in holy convocation before you as your people in your presence and now with your word before us. Lord, help us to be people who do not merely hear the word but do what it says. And so help us with anticipation to look at what you have to say from your authoritative word, and be eager to apply it in our lives so that we can better glorify you this coming week. We ask you to do this, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, each week we have inserted in your program an outline of the message, and I encourage you to take that outline out so that you can follow along as we look at this opening passage in the book of Jonah, where we see, first of all, that the book of Jonah challenges us regarding the danger of grace. Now, it may seem strange to speak of grace as being dangerous, but what I'm referring to is the danger of distorting grace due to a false view of ourselves or a false view of others. With regard to grace and how we view ourselves, we can come to believe that we deserve it, or as I say in the outline, that I get what's coming to me. Jonah fell prey to the danger of thinking that he deserved God's grace. A little is known about Jonah personally, but the first verse of this book ties him to some other scripture that can help us create a profile of who he was. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now we find this same Jonah referred to earlier in the Bible, in the book of 2 Kings, where the Bible says this, 
Jeroboam restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. Now, the description of Jonah in 2 Kings 14 tells us something of the various ways that Jonah was privileged by God's grace. First, he had the privilege of service. Because the verse on the screen refers to him as servant Jonah. Servant is often used in Scripture for someone specifically set apart by God for a task. When the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, offers descriptions and predictions of the coming Messiah that we now know as Jesus, and it did that hundreds of years before, it uses this word, servant. So, for example, in Isaiah 52, prophesying, predicting the coming of the Messiah, says, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. In the second Kings passage, Jonah was called a prophet as well as a servant. And the prophets, as a class, have a special designation as servants. We see this in passages like Amos chapter 3. The sovereign Lord reveals his plan to his servants, the prophets. So when this very first verse of Jonah identifies him in the same way as 2 Kings did, it's signifying that the one who is the central human character in this story is one who had been entrusted by God with God's very words to bring his people under those words practical authority. And further, the book of Jonah was likely written after he had served as a prophet for many years. So that he could now, in this book, be identified simply as Jonah, the son of Amittai. Because people remembered who that is. Remembered what he preached. He had apparently enjoyed a successful career as a prophet and a servant of God. So Jonah knew the grace of God. In that, he had the privilege of service. But he also had the privilege of purpose. The verse just before that second Kings passage that we read on the screen earlier says this. Israel's kings did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of their predecessors. As I say, this verse is the one just before what we saw earlier where Jonah is identified as a prophet and a servant. And this one tells us something about the times in which Jonah lived. It was a time of crisis for God's people due to a succession of evil kings. But despite the sins of the leadership, which had an effect on the entire nation, God was at the same time raising up prophets in the days just prior to Jonah. Men like Elijah and Elisha. God raised them up to speak his word. Prior to that time, there had been relative silence from God and a dearth of prophets. But now Jonah is following in their footsteps so that he's among this privileged group of God's servants. So Jonah lived with a sense of purpose. One author says that to be a true prophet of God and to be made aware that God has a destiny for one's life were almost synonymous in the thinking of the Old Testament. If you were a prophet, you were a man on a mission. 
You woke up every day knowing that you had a divine purpose. And being aware of our purpose has some practical effect. Because it's one of the greatest incentives to keep going on even in difficult times. We see this in the life of Paul in the New Testament. He had been called by God to be God's mouthpiece to the Gentiles. That was Paul's purpose. So that later when he's in prison for nothing other than preaching the gospel, he recalls that purpose. And he says this, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul endures and Paul can endure because he remembers what his purpose is. He's a man on a mission. People who forget their purpose drift. Jonah was a man of purpose because he had a calling and he knew what it was. So God's grace was shown to Jonah in the privileges of service and of purpose, but also of fellowship. In the book of 2 Kings, from which we quoted earlier about the ministry of Jonah the prophet, that book frequently uses a phrase, sons of the prophets. And it uses that phrase to refer to young men who were protégés of the prophets. This was written during the time that Jonah would have been a teenager. And so in all probability, he was one of those young men mentored by the prophets, or at minimum, he was friends with those who were. So serving the Lord at a young age with people who are similarly committed is a singular and great privilege. Kim and I were blessed to serve, for example, with Pastor Rich and Tracy in our early 20s. And now here we are in our late 30s. (laughs) But here we are still serving the Lord in part because of the fire ignited in those early years. One commentator said, Early years of spiritual fellowship invested in study, prayer, discussion, evangelism, and the sheer exhilaration of seeking to discover the will of God for our own lives and the purpose of God for our fellowship, they repay vast dividends in the future. Is there anything to be compared with the friendships forged in the heat of fellowship? This comradeship lasts and does not seem to be diminished by distance or by time. We ought to thank God with all our hearts if we have had the privilege of being bound together with fellow Christians like this to live and to die for Christ and his cause. And I say, young people in particular, consider that a marvelous privilege that you have to learn of the Lord, to serve the Lord now, to begin habits now that will serve you well into the future. So Jonah experienced God's grace in the forms of service and purpose and fellowship. And yet, despite all of that, we're going to see that Jonah failed. You can see then why I said earlier, we see in this book ourselves mirrored. The grace of God lavished upon us, and yet all of us fail. It teaches us then that in the words of one author, no past privilege, nor all past privileges together, no past obedience nor fruitfulness in service can ever substitute for present obedience to the word of God. Friends, the danger of grace is that it can be taken for granted and we can come to believe that we deserve it. As we'll see, that's what Jonah did. 
So we can falsely come to believe, I'm just getting what I deserved. I'm just getting what's coming to me. And we're, and when compared to others, then we can come to believe what I say in your outline. You get what's coming to you. That is, for those who don't have our privileges, and especially those who have no affinity with, that we have no affinity with, or we've come to dislike or despise, we believe they should get what's coming to them in punishment. We deserve grace. Let me say that again. We deserve grace. I'm hoping in your mind you're going, that's a contradiction in terms. Because grace, by very definition, is undeserved merit from God. But we think that. Our hearts think that. We deserve it. They deserve judgment. So we see that Jonah had come to believe this in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. Where God said to Jonah, verse 2, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port, and paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now we know that this was the reason... For Jonah rebelling against God's command, namely that he doesn't think they deserve it. He's been lavish God's grace, but they don't deserve it. And we know that's the reason he didn't follow God's command and in fact rebelled against it because Jonah himself says so. As we'll see in the weeks ahead, Jonah does end up doing as God commanded, but only reluctantly. And when the Ninevites respond positively to his preaching, he's not happy about it. We see that at the end of the book, chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 2. He complains to Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And sure enough, you've gone and done that. Sure enough, you've gone and shown grace to these undeserving people. I hope you're happy. Because I'm not. So verse 3, take away my life. For it's better for me to die than to live. That's how much he despised those people. Our privileged prophet had no desire to preach to the hated Ninevites lest they repent because, well, they don't deserve it like he does. Why did he despise the Ninevites so much? I want to spend a few minutes talking about who these people are. Because you may think in your mind now, what is up with Jonah? He's got all these privileges given to him. God gives him the privilege of preaching his word. And yet he rebels against it. What is Jonah's problem? Well, I hope that we will see that Jonah is not so different from us as we think about who these people are. Nineveh, Scripture and history tell us a bit about why it was that Jonah rebelled. Nineveh was built at least 1,200 years before the time of Jonah. The Bible says it was built by Nimrod. 
You may remember that name. He was a central figure in the Tower of Babel episode in Genesis chapter 10. The Bible says Nimrod grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He built Nineveh. And after Jonah's day, Nineveh became the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The reason God sent Jonah to preach, verse 2 says, against Nineveh, is that the people were relentless and persistent in their sins. The Assyrian king acknowledged in chapter 3 that his people's ways were evil and characterized by violence. Another Old Testament prophet, Zephaniah, tells us that these people were, quote, carefree. They thought of themselves as invincible. The prophet Nahum spoke of a number of the Ninevites' crimes. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. Your merchants strip the land and then fly away like locusts. Nineveh was the capital of one of the cruelest, vilest, and most powerful and most idolatrous empires in the world. Now, I'm going to read for you some descriptions of the cruelty of the Ninevites. So, it's a, it's a bit graphic, but I want you to get a full picture. So, for example, writing of one of his conquests, an Assyrian king boasted, quote, I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. And their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors, I cut off. And I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens, I burned in the fire. Regarding one captured leader, he wrote, I flayed him. His skin I spread upon the wall of the city. He also wrote of mutilating the bodies of live captives and stacking their corpses in piles. Shalmaneser, one of their kings in the ninth century B.C., boasted of his cruelties after one of his campaigns, saying, A pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city, their youths and their maidens I burned up in the flames. Sennacherib wrote of his enemies, quote, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. Their hands I cut off. Another of their kings, Ashurbanipal, described his treatment of a captured leader in these words. I pierced his chin with my keen hand, my keen hand dagger. Through his jaw, I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him, and made him occupy a kennel. In his campaign against Egypt, Ashurbanipal boasted that his officials hung Egyptian corpses, quote, on stakes and stripped off their skins and covered the city's walls with them. Should I go on? A violent hated, dreaded people. And in addition, they were known for their idolatry. Nineveh had temples dedicated to the gods Nabu, Asher, and Adad. The Ninevites also worshipped Ishtar, a goddess of love and war. So you can see in one sense that Jonah had good reason to dislike the Ninevites. 
right? But then again, God had good reason to dislike us. And yet he showed us his grace. The danger of grace is that we come to think we deserve it. And yet others, especially those we've come to loathe, do not. The book of Jonah challenges us regarding the danger of grace. But also the scope of grace. And the scope of grace is that, thanks be to God, there is more than enough to go around. One commentator has noted the ancient Israelites who prided themselves as God's chosen people possessed the word of the prophets and God's covenant of grace. And yet they forgot that these were held not solely for themselves, but they were held in trust for all the world. The psalmist sang in Psalm 67, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. In fact, Israel's call to bless the nations goes way back to their very beginning in God's promise to the patriarch Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so Jonah is, in this respect, really depicting all of Israel. He resented the idea of Israel's God sending Israel's grace to non-Israelites, especially the hated Ninevites. And northern Israelites, like Jonah, and we know he was a northern Israelite because his hometown, given to us in 2 Kings chapter 14 of Gath-Hefer, seems to have been in the northernmost region. They were the ones who suffered the most from Assyrian depravity. But Jonah's resentment was not directed merely against his national enemies like Assyria. He seems to have disdained God's grace for all unworthy sinners. We saw that at the end of the book, Jonah explains why he rejected God's summons to preach at Nineveh. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And if I preach, then there may be a positive response. Jonah, in all likelihood, learned this from Ezekiel chapter 34, where the Lord reveals himself as, quote, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this truth was reinforced by Jonah's own dealings with Israel's wicked king. Despite Jeroboam's gross sins against God, many of which must have brought affliction to the faithful in Israel. God showed him mercy. So by this point, Jonah had had enough of God's forgiving mercy for the wicked. God had extended grace to Jeroboam and the idolatrous Israelites. And Jonah had even been the one to convey that good news, that this would happen. But it wasn't good news for Jonah. He believed in the grace of God, but he resented it when God showed mercy to the wicked in Israel. And he certainly did not believe in the grace of God for the entire world. In a sense, Jonah wanted Israel to be glorified. Or just the righteous in Israel to be glorified. But what he needed to know is that the purpose of God's grace, friends, remember, is that God would be glorified. And that his glory should be displayed in all of his world. But Jonah feared that God's grace for Nineveh 
would come at his, at Israel's expense. But grace never works that way. Thanks be to God, it's not portioned out in servings. If for one, then there's not enough for the other. In God's plan, grace abounds through his gospel so that God's blessings on Nineveh would result in blessing for Israel as well. And that's what we need to remember as the privileged recipients of God's grace. That everyone deserves it just as much as we do, meaning none of us deserves it. So there's more than enough to go around. And I say in your outline, there are many who need it to come around. So we've talked about the Ninevites. We've talked about how awful they are. We've seen Jonah's reaction to his privilege of grace. The way he despised and did not want them to experience God's grace. Now I want to make it personal. I wonder if you would be honest enough to think in your mind now, contemplate in your own heart, people that you've come to despise. You know, dear friends, we live in a very divided culture. So that there are people who we deem off limits. We're divided over all sorts of issues, including politically. So that if you're on my political side, I will afford you leeway that I won't afford to anybody else on the other side. I'll urge people to pray for the person that's on my side of the political aisle, which we should do. It's right. But we need to ask ourselves, did I pray when we had somebody else on the other side of the aisle in charge? So how do you think about people like this as it relates to their need for the gospel? I'm going to put pictures on the screen. What if God called us to give the gospel to people like this? Now, we've got the reflection, but can you see what that is? That's an immigrant caravan. A lot of ways to think about that. Some of them very heinous. As we think about the mass of humanity loaded on that truck. But is the gospel for them? And if the gospel is for them, then how should we be known as people in terms of the way we treat them? And the way we talk about them? Or what about somebody like this? Some of you know this is a congresswoman from Minnesota. If you didn't know that... You can see that she's a Muslim woman. How do you talk about people like that? How do you feel about people like that? Or people, other people who arouse strong feelings. You know, really. And of course, when I say these things, I'm saying them to myself. 
as well. Or what about this next guy who aroused and arouses strong feelings? Or somebody like this. Or just somebody unknown to any of us that looks like this. Or how about people you might be afraid of because of the way they look or what you've heard about them? Or people we make fun of like this. Or people that we're repulsed by. This is the sex offender registry in Michigan. It's just a random person. Don't know particularly what the offense was. Don't really want to know. So all of us, myself included, need to ask ourselves, what are your first thoughts when you see people in the gallery that we've just displayed? Our first thoughts, this is someone made in the image of God. Someone, believe it or not, the Bible says fearfully and wonderfully made. Who are in need of the gospel. And therefore, that needs to dictate how I talk about them. Yes, to them, but about them as well. Or are our first thoughts those of hate and anger and rage? If we're honest, for some they are. And I need to remember, and you need to remember, dear friend, what the Word of God says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Do you you see what that's saying? Our struggle is not against people. Our struggle is not against other image bearers. Our struggle in the titanic spiritual struggle of the gospel is not a political struggle. It's not a cultural struggle. Rather, it is against spiritual forces that hold people in bondage, And in their sway and would for me and you, but for the grace of God. So the book of Jonah challenges us regarding the danger of grace. And regarding the scope of that grace. But it reminds us lastly of the God of grace. And this God of grace is sovereign. Pastor Richard Phillips says this about God's summons to Jonah in verse 1, the very first verse of the book. God's sovereign call to Jonah was brief, it was direct, and it was imperative. His call to Jonah did not come with an explanation. Many people today consent to obey God's word only when it makes sense to them. But the sovereign God does not accept such an arrangement. God's call to Jonah was sudden, just as a military commander often gives sudden instructions based on concerns known only to their superiors. We, too, may have a sudden command from God's word made known to us. And our duty to God is to obey immediately immediately and submissively. 
As Isaiah replied when God first made his will known to him, we likewise should respond, here am I, send me. Not only was God's command to Jonah sovereign and sudden, it was a difficult command. Nineveh was a great distance away. It was in the heart of a violent empire. It was among the largest cities in the ancient world, which is why God refers to it as that great city, Nineveh. Chapter 3 tells us Nineveh was an exceeding great city. It was three days' journey in breadth. Once you were there, it took you three days to go across it. It was also distant. It was about 600 miles northeast of Israel, located near present-day Mosul in Iraq. And God was sending Jonah alone, commanding him to announce a message of doom. Chapter 3 says the message was, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So imagine receiving that kind of summons from God. Imagine the difficulties that would go through the mind and the obstacles to any kind of success. But God has and God exercises, friends, the right to give the most difficult missions to his people. God called Abraham to leave his father's land and journey to a distant land. God told Moses to stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Moses replied the way we often do, please send someone else. But God rejected that. It was his will for Moses to be the one. God once directed the prophet Isaiah to walk naked and barefoot for three years as he preached judgment against Egypt and Cush. God directed a teenage girl named Mary to have the son of the Most High carried in her virgin womb, threatening her reputation and her engagement. Why does God give such difficult commands? It's for his sovereign purposes, but it's also for the purpose of his grace. When God gives the most difficult commands, hear this, he typically intends the most marvelous acts of deliverance and salvation. Abraham was sent to the promised land to become the father of the people of the faith. Moses was sent to Egypt to lead the exodus out of Egypt. Mary, as a virgin, bore a child and delivered the Messiah to the world. Whenever we find that God has called us to a task that seems more difficult than we think we can handle, our hope ought to be kindled that God intends to do something wonderful and great. So in the call of Jonah, we see that God is sovereign. And in the commission of Jonah, we see that our God is righteous. Our God is righteous. God's call to Jonah was a righteous one. The incredible evil of Nineveh was known to the Lord, so it was right for him to send a representative and declare his displeasure against the city. Jonah may not have liked the idea of going to Nineveh, but as a prophet of the Most High, it was right for him to be sent there with this message of warning. And we're going to conclude and pray in just a moment. Friends, I ask you, has God, the sovereign and righteous God, given us a mission to carry out. Jonah was a man on a mission. Jonah was a man of purpose, as I said earlier, but guess what? So are we. And Jesus gave his final marching orders, and in those final marching orders, before he ascended back to the Father, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. We think of going and making disciples of all nations as if... That means 
that some people are then going to be missionaries on the foreign field and they're going to take the word to lands abroad. That's certainly true. And we then may think that if God called me to do that, then I would obey and I would go and do that. But use this as a test for yourself, as I use it for myself. If we can't love foreign people who have come to us, how do we ever think we're going to love those people enough to go to them? You see, friends, we live in an area where the world is coming to us. And yet with all of our political rhetoric and all of our cultural divides, how are we ever going to show the love of Christ to give the gospel to them? When what they think is we hate them and we despise them. It's a challenge for all of us in this divided time in which we live. We need to remember what I say in the take-home truth. God's grace has no conditions. And God's grace knows no bounds. Let's bow together before the Lord. Father, we thank you for the message and life of your servant Jonah. We thank you, Lord, for recording this for us in Holy Scripture so that we can look in it and see mirrored there ourselves and our own struggles. We are people greatly, greatly privileged. We're privileged economically. We're privileged militarily. And most of all, we are privileged spiritually. And yet, Father, if we're honest, we have a heart like Jonah. A heart that says, it's good for me, I deserve it, but not for thee. Oh, Father, help us today, this week, and in the weeks ahead to examine our hearts so that we see in the recesses there anything that would displace the love of Christ for those to whom you have called us to minister. Lord, help us to have the humility to see that, to repent of that, to confess that, to lay that aside so that we can move forward for you. And see your glory magnified in the grace that you give to all people through the gospel. And Lord, we will be sure to give you the honor for what you accomplished through this. In Jesus' name, amen.